Welcome back to the 10 Blocks podcast. This is your host, Brian Anderson, the editor of City Journal. The cities of the Pacific Northwest have long been a magnet for street people. In 2017, we did a podcast with City Journal writer Michael Totten on Portland's challenges with homelessness. But today, we're here to talk about its next-door neighbor, Seattle, Washington. Over the past half decade, the Emerald City has seen an explosion of homelessness as well as crime and addiction, and the situation doesn't appear to be improving anytime soon. In the autumn 2018 issue of City Journal, Seattle resident Christopher Rufo documents the city's political struggle to deal with the crisis in an essay entitled Seattle Under Siege. Chris joined us on the podcast from his home in Seattle, and our conversation begins after this. We hope you enjoy. Hello again, everyone. This is Brian Anderson, editor of City Journal. Joining me on the show today is Christopher Rufo. Chris is the executive director for the Documentary Foundation and a research fellow at the Discovery Institute's Center for Wealth and Poverty. He's directed three documentaries for PBS, and his next film, America Lost, tells the story of life in three struggling American cities, Youngstown, Ohio, Memphis, Tennessee, and Stockton, California. But here we're, we're going to talk about his first major essay for City Journal, a story entitled Seattle Under Siege. It appeared in our autumn 2018 issue. Chris, thanks very much for joining us. It's a pleasure. A first question, just how bad is Seattle's homelessness problem? What kind of impact is it having on quality of life generally in the city? And what's the mood of the city's residents like yourself? So that's actually three three questions to get us going. Sure. Well, you know, the <clears throat> the idea of the Ten Blocks podcast is really apt because I'll tell I'll tell you how the how people feel just within ten blocks of my house here in Seattle, Washington, uh north of the Ship Canal, uh we've had uh an explosion of homelessness. It's gone up four hundred percent in the last year alone. And this has had tremendous knock-on consequences. We've had a gentleman uh, arrested uh, for armed robbery who was camping behind a daycare. Uh, we had another gentleman who set someone on fire a few blocks of street from my house. And there's just been a constant slow-rolling explosion of homeless encampments, property crime, and addiction. I recently gave a presentation in, here in the Ballard neighborhood, and I took a show of hands. I had about 100 people, and I said, who's been the victim of a property crime, an assault, Um, or another kind of low-level offense uh, that was homelessness-related. And about 9 out of 10, so 90 people out of 100, raised their hands. So we've created a situation in Seattle that is um, verging on catastrophic, and people are tremendously concerned. In your essay, you describe the political debate around the homelessness crisis in the city as being divided into four broad categories— all of them variants of liberal or left-leaning thought. Um, Do you want to say something about the kind of political culture of Seattle and how that's feeding into this crisis? Yeah, I think the the main problem that we see in Seattle is that our 
homelessness policies are ideologically driven. And I, I divide it up into four categories. We have the socialist contingent. They have a councilwoman, Shama Sawant, who's a member of the Socialist Alternative Party. And they keep hammering away at this idea that homelessness is a housing problem and that we'll only solve it by building public housing. Um, which ignores the overwhelming evidence that's been stable in the academic literature since the 1990s, that about 80% of people who are on the streets uh, struggle with lifetime drug and alcohol addiction and mental illness, uh, which are the biggest contributors to homelessness and really can't be solved just by building housing units. The second is what I call the compassion brigades. These are people for whom compassion is the highest virtue and actually the only virtue in how they make policy. But the fatal flaw um, in that point of view is that they measure compassion by inputs. How much money are we spending? How much do we care? How good do we look um, in, in our policy rhetoric? And then they ignore the, the consequences and the disastrous policy effects. Um, you know, in the, in the Puget Sound region in King County, uh, which is uh, the most populous county in Washington state, total public and private spending on homelessness is now more than a billion dollars a year. That's about $80,000 for every homeless man, woman, and child that's spent every year. It's extremely compassionate, but it's extremely ineffective uh, because actually the problem has been getting worse every year. Uh, the third one is the homeless industrial complex. Um, anytime there's a billion dollars a year in spending, that means that people are making a tremendous amount of money. And in the City Journal essay, I highlight one organization, one of the largest recipients of city contracts is called the DESC. And this started as a very small nonprofit um, helping people uh, in the 1970s get off the streets, get them fed, get them sheltered, and get them on the path to independence. Now it's kind of this sprawling behemoth that employs uh, more than 900 people. They pay salaries uh, oftentimes above $200,000 a year, and they're sitting on $113 million of downtown real estate. These are major interest groups, and their incentives are not to make the are not to solve the problem, but to perpetuate the problem, because there's this perverse mechanism by which they get they get bigger contracts the more homelessness there is. So, in a deep economic way, um, their incentives aren't aligned with solving the problem. And then finally, something that I think might be new to to even to City Journal readers um, is there's this burgeoning movement of what I'm calling addiction evangelism. Uh, in the past, people had the addiction model of recovery, um, of sobriety, of getting people back and healthy. But in a city like Seattle, there's a movement to not only decriminalize addiction, but to actually publicly subsidize it. Um, there's a movement led by uh, quote-unquote harm reduction uh, groups that uh, are really pushing so-called safe injection sites. Um, to allow addicts to go to a government-funded uh, facility to shoot up heroin, uh, cocaine, methamphetamines, under the supervision of a, of a, of a nurse. Um, the theory is that it will reduce overdose deaths, but actually they've been trying that in Vancouver, Canada, for the past 10 years, and it's had no impact on reducing addiction, and it's actually created uh, what, what a magnet effect that's drawing people in from outside. And Seattle actually recently, after the piece was published, went a step further. And the city council just approved a $1.3 million budget to approve mobile heroin injection vans. So a city-funded van will be essentially moving from place to place around uh, neighborhoods, allowing addicts to jump in, uh, inject heroin under their nurse's supervision and jump out. 
And the more I'm talking to people, um, just everyday folks, uh, law enforcement officers, neighbors, attorneys, service workers, uh, construction workers, once they actually find out what's going on, they're shocked and appalled. Um, but we have such an uh, ideologically driven public policy in Seattle that's driven um, by activists um, that whose 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 interest is so great that they control the policy debate, um, even though they represent a tiny fraction of the population. You know, as I'm sure many of our listeners are aware, Seattle is synonymous these days nationally with its big, uh, very progressive-minded corporations that were founded in the area. Um, Amazon, of course, and Microsoft and Starbucks uh, being the big three. Um, You know, I'm curious, has there been any push from these very powerful business groups to address the homelessness problem, um, or have they stayed out of the debate, or have they joined the wrong side on it? So that, that's a great question, and, and this is one of the greatest surprises that I've found over the last few years observing this phenomenon. Um, we have a huge business sector, um, high-tech, uh, we have great manufacturing companies, consumer companies, shipping companies, um, and in theory, the kind of chamber of commerce class could be exerting a massive influence on public policy. But what I think has actually happened is that they've been cowed by activists, Um, people are so afraid of crossing the activists, of having the wrong opinions, of, of going against the grain of the prevailing political orthodoxy, that even these giants, like your Microsofts and your Amazons and your Boeings and your Starbucks, um, really have refused to engage and refused to participate. Um, they, they kind of do some obligatory, uh, spending on homelessness, but, they aren't advocating for the kind of common sense, um, uh, stronger public policies that I think they would. And I think what what's really happening is that even though these are companies with a clear uh, economic interest, um, they've essentially been f- put in a, in a in a kind of a fear mentality. And and not to mention that a lot of the folks, you know, Seattle, I think uh, Seattle was is something around 10 percent uh, Republican, 90 percent Democrat. Um, so the, the, the political center of gravity is very far to the left. And uh, companies have been, the activists have successfully um, bullied these companies into silence and to not engaging. And even during the head tax debate last year, which was a, a tax that the city council passed and then repealed, um, the, the inside baseball that I've heard is that the Chamber of Commerce almost didn't get involved with the effort to repeal a head tax that would tax all of their uh, all of their employees, uh, and um, and that just shows you that uh, there there is I think at one at, at one time a tremendous reluctance, but also a tremendous potential. And I think that if business if the situation gets bad enough and business gets engaged, uh, we may be able to see some changes even in Seattle. In terms of changes, uh, what's your view of some some of the kind of policies uh, at work in other cities? that have had some success in reducing street homelessness. Here I'm thinking of, of San Diego or, or Houston or perhaps even New York, although our, our problem here is, is growing, you know, certainly over the last three or four years. I think that if you look at the kind of broader landscape of American cities, um, many have done a great job at reducing street homelessness. And I think it starts with you have to build 
uh, quickly temporary emergency FEMA-style shelters. That's what San Diego did. They built, uh, using all private philanthropic donations, they built 900 shelter beds in just eight weeks. Um, while here in Seattle, we're talking about these massive public housing projects that will take decades. San Diego did something very smart. They created the shelter beds because you have to create somewhere to go for all the people that are sleeping on the streets. Um, and they did that first, and then that allowed them to actually enforce the law, which I think is the second step. And I talk with many police officers here in Seattle, and they're so frustrated because the message from the top is don't enforce any of the uh, don't don't enforce the law against you know public camping, but also don't enforce any of the related crimes that are highly correlated and associated with homelessness, uh, littering, property crime, uh, you know public drug consumption, vandalism. Uh, and, and we've essentially decriminalized that entire class of low-level offenses. Um, but that has to be the second step. So first, build housing. Second, enforce the law. Um, get people off the streets and into housing. The third step is provide services. I think that everyone in Seattle and across the country as Americans, we're a, a generous, uh, compassionate people. And if someone is su suffering from an addiction, if someone is suffering a temporary economic hardship, if someone is suffering from a serious mental illness like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, we should really put pull out all this, pull all the stops, and do everything that we can to help them. Um, and then the fourth, I, I propose a couple new ideas, um, which is create a, a jobs program. There's a great nonprofit in Seattle called the Millionaire Club. And they kind of do a work-first um, approach to homelessness, where they immediately get people um, who are experiencing homelessness um, cleaning up the streets, working in stadiums, doing kind of uh, public public works projects. And I'd say that if you can offer an immediate $15 an hour job, which is the minimum wage in Seattle, to every person that's struggling with homelessness, you're giving them an opportunity. So you provide housing, uh, enforce the law, provide services, and then provide opportunity because I think one of the critical judge philosophical mistakes that we have in Seattle is that we think the job is done when we get people off the streets and into housing. My view is that you actually want to go a step further and get people on the path to independence. You've got to give them an opportunity to then become self-sufficient. And I think that if you've if you've really spent a lot of time with with the homeless and with successful programs, you can see incredible, remarkable transformations. And that really, you have to set the right telos, the right ends. And I think that you have to set a higher standard for people, even who are at the bottom of society. You have to tell them, that you have to provide them with the message that you can do it, you can recover, you can get back on your feet, and you can be successful. And I think that we really have to change how we think fundamentally about the homelessness crisis if we want, any, if we want to have any hope for resolving it. Chris, uh just to change registers a little bit, you had launched at least the beginning of a campaign for city council uh, this this past year and uh, had to pull out or decided to pull out. Do you, do you want to describe that experience a little bit? Yeah, you know, I think that, uh, you know, Seattle is, is struggling with this homelessness crisis, and I felt like um, some new ideas were really necessary. And uh, for about a year, some of my colleagues and mentors and neighbors and friends had really encouraged me to run for city council to try to provide a counterweight to some of the policies that have been uh, so disastrous over the last decade. And um, I, I put my hat in the ring early and uh, I got tremendous support uh, from across the city, from a lot of people in neighborhoods who are fed up with some of the policy uh, failures that they're seeing every day. 
Um, but I, I got the a very quick education in how activist uh, pressure groups work. And uh, in, in a very short time period as my campaign was gaining some momentum, um, I started getting barraged by harassment, by threats. Um, one individual from an activist group had posted um, hundreds of messages, uh, uh, threatening messages over the period of a few weeks. Um, they had gone after my wife, attempting to get her fired from her employer. Uh, she works at Microsoft. Um, they had gone, um, they had been posting white supremacist content uh, to my family. And I'm, I'm, a, my, my, I'm a biracial family, interracial marriage, and uh, I have mixed race kids. Um, and, uh, and then the, the final straw is they actually went after my kids. Um, they started posting hateful messages to my eight-year-old son school Facebook page. And, uh, um, and, and then not only that, they, they, they let people know that they knew where I lived and, um, and really just kind of uh, engaged in a reign of terror. And uh, I, I, I very regretfully withdrew from the race um, because it was a decision that I had to make for uh, the best interest of my family. And I, I felt conflicted because I, I deeply want policy change. Um, but the political environment, as you've seen with uh, in Seattle, as you've seen with Andy Noe's reporting for City Journal down in Portland, um, is saturated with the threat of violence. And uh, I think that we have to really resolve that deeper cultural issue. And we have to push back against this kind of uh, totalitarian impulse in our, in our biggest cities. If we wanna have successful candidates that are running in the center or even the right of center, and um, I, I decided that for the best interest of my family and also um, for the broader question, I wanted to really shift my focus back to uh, the cultural side. And hopefully that if we can figure out some strategies to combat this kind of violence and intimidation um, in the long term, we can see some improvement. Finally, Chris, you're, as I mentioned in the introduction, a documentary filmmaker you have uh, a new film coming out uh, that will be of interest, certainly to City Journal readers. It's called America Lost. Do you want to take a moment to just talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so America Lost is a uh, feature-length documentary feature, um, t exploring life in three uh, what I'm calling forgotten American cities. Uh, Youngstown, Ohio, the quintessential Rust Belt city, uh, Memphis, Tennessee, urban, southern, African-American city, uh, and then Stockton, California, which is a uh, tremendously interesting city. It's a, a kind of a mixed racial city, a quarter white, a quarter black, a quarter Latino, and a quarter Asian, um, and a, a representative of the interior of California in stark contrast to the very prosperous coastal cities. And I spent about three years in these places really trying to understand what went wrong and if there's any hope for uh, reviving these places. And I kind of tested out some of the policy ideas and I really started thinking, well, what were the public policies that led to the decline of these uh, once prosperous American cities? And then over time, I realized that there are these deeper economic and social changes since the 19, 1960s really. Um, that have devastated these cities um, well beyond um, the reach of our public policy. And that really became the focus. So I, I look at some uh, family life. I follow them over the course of about three years as they're struggling through these um, 
in some cases, apocalyptic conditions. Um, And I really look at the kind of social, cultural, and even spiritual dynamics at play in these cities that have been truly left behind in our modern uh, American economy. And uh, I think what I really learned is that um, we're still struggling with this transition from the modern industrial economy to the postmodern, post-industrial economy. And this has created kind of a bifurcated world where I'm sitting in Seattle, Washington. I'm within walking distance of, of you know, 40,000 Amazon employees. Um, but then I fly out to Youngstown um, and it looks like Nagasaki after the atomic bomb drop in World War II. And there's this great tension um, between that people are really feeling between the prosperous cities where wealth has become more concentrated and then these cities that, in, in my best analysis, have failed to make the transition into from the modern to the postmodern world. Um, and uh, that's, I think, one of the most critical questions uh, that we face as Americans uh, looking forward to the next 20, 30, 40 years. It's a theme that we've been exploring at City Journal over the last couple of years, including a special issue that we put out uh, in 2017 called The Shape of Work to Come. Don't forget to check out Christopher Rufo's wonderful and important essay, Seattle Under Siege. You can find it on our website, www.city-journal.org. You can follow Chris on Twitter, at Rufodox, that's with an X, at Rufodox. We would also love to hear your comments about today's episode on Twitter, at City Journal. Lastly, if you like our show and want to hear more, please leave ratings and reviews on iTunes. Thanks for listening, and thanks, Chris, for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10 Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests.